0: This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sira, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on facebook at facebookcom Institute bismillah alhamdulillah wa salatu wa ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi so as i was just mentioning um alhamdulillah we've reached a point in the life of the study of the life of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam where we've talked about the beginning of revelation of course a landmark event of the opening of the doors of divine revelation so that 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 message or that communication which would occur from the heavens to the earth by means of the prophets and the anbiya mussalam, that door was reopened, that channel was re in the form, in the shape of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And so one thing that we discussed um, a few times, I brought it up a few times was that when revelation came upon the Prophet sallallahu alayhi and revelation started up again, اقرأ This was the first time in over 600 years, according to Asah al-Riwayat, the first time in over 600 years that revelation was occurring. So this is a huge event. This is a landmark event. Anytime revelation occurs, of course, it's life-changing, it's life-altering, it changes the world as we know it. And especially this is the finality of Prophethood, this is the finality of the message from Allah. So of course this is going to be very, very... This is a huge occurrence. But when you take into consideration that for over 600 years, no revelation has occurred, no prophet has walked the face of the earth, that makes it an even that much more grander of an event. And so that major event took place, the first revelation came. The impact of that on the Prophet ﷺ personally, and what effect that it had on him, and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually accommodated him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually provided time for him to be able to embrace this experience, internalize exactly what had occurred with him, and then for him to be able to go forward from there, having processed and understood exactly what is at stake, what is at hand, and what exactly is transpiring here at this very moment. We then, that that accommodation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is what is called fatratul wahi. It was basically a pause in revelation. And we discussed that link the pause in revelation, exactly what it means, what transpired and what exactly happened. And then in the very last session that we had before this, we talked about the types of revelation. Not just the types, but the means, the protection, the 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 how the prophet sallallahu alaihi was taught to process the revelation and internalize revelation and basically what to do with it once that revelation had occurred so we talked about all of that where we're at right now in the life of the prophet sallallahu in the sirah is that revelation as the famous narration goes i mentioned this narration at the at the end of the previous session ثُمَّ تَتَابَعَ الْوَحْيُ then Allah, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Sahaba radiallahu anhu who narrate this about the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam, they then say, and then after that the revelation, the wahi became a regular occurrence. Then it regularly, consistently continued from there. And it did not stop, it did not cease until, of course, the end of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And there were certain moments in times, like we know that, that will eventually come up in the seerah, which is basically the سبب Nuzul, the, the circumstances of revelation behind Suratul Kahf and other ayat of the Qur'an, that there was a pause for some report, 12 days, 15 days, 16 days, that was there. Even I mentioned in the previous session that even after this revelation now continued, you know, continuously, successively it continued, at that point in time, there was a a time of a few days, a couple of days, in which actually the Prophet became very ill, became very sick. And at that point in time, revelation paused once again. But it paused only for a couple of days. And in fact, more than anything else, you know, one of the goals and the objectives in the seerah session is to humanize the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and understand the effect of this on the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and how we can connect and relate to these experiences of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. One of the things we talked about revelation is when revelation would occur, when it would come down on the Prophet wasallam it was very heavy. Physically, it was a lot to bear for him. And we talked about how this makes us admire the Prophet ﷺ because in spite of how heavy and difficult it was physically on him, this was something that he bore, this was something that he dealt with for our sake. That he never asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make it stop. He never said, Oh Allah, please make it stop. I can't take it anymore, because he knew that if the Prophet was willing to make the sacrifice of physically bearing the weight of divine revelation, the word of God, that all of humanity would benefit because of that message. And that's a sacrifice that he took that he made. That that's a hit that he took. And so this is from the kindness, the benevolence of the Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings be upon him. So when the Prophet ﷺ actually became very physically ill, it is on the mercy and the blessing of Allah that revelation paused for a couple of days to allow the Prophet ﷺ to physically recuperate. And once he had recovered, then the first revelation that came was very beautifully, saja ma wa ma qala." And that, that revelation of Surah Al-Duhah came down talking about the, the the, 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 brilliance of daytime and the sun reaching, going towards its peak and daylight filling the entire earth. And then the night when it has fully taken over and has become calm and peaceful. That first you experience brilliance, then you experience a little bit of quiet and a little bit of, you know, that, that lack of that revelation is described as a night when it's become quiet. But realize one thing, this was done for your own good. Your Lord has not abandoned you, nor is he upset with you in the least bit. So then, revelation from here on continued. So, aside from these occasional pauses of this nature, generally speaking, revelation continued from here on out. Now, if revelation continued from here on out, then. What exactly is the next stage what occurred in the life of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam one of the first initial revelations was we talked about this in the last session that it was iqra bismi according to many scholars of ulum al-quran the second revelation was suratul qalam noon wal qalami wama yasurun ma anta bi ni'mati rabbika bi majnun wa innaka la ajran ghayra mamnun wa innaka la ala khuluqin adheem that the prophetism was again consoled by allah Said that this is this, this revelation, this Quran, this is something you're writing history here. History is being written here. You haven't lost your mind. Have confidence. Allah is taking care of you. And this is by the blessing of Allah. This is by the blessing of your Lord. If you can stick with this and see this through, there is a reward that awaits you that will never end, that will never cease, that will never discontinue and what you have to remember from here on out that what is about to come your way maybe you don't even realize but just know this much you know when you sometimes give somebody some instruction and say look I, you know for, there's a lot of things that are yet to unfold that are yet to transpire but I just want you to remember one thing to follow through with in, with everything else no matter what comes your way there's one thing you can't forget that one thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet to never let go of, to never forget, was his character and his akhlaq. No matter what comes your way. وَإِنَّكَ You remember, you keep in mind, you never let go of the character that Allah has given you. Because that's going to be instrumental. That's going to make sure you never lose yourself in the process. You remember who you are and how you're meant to conduct yourself. So this was the second revelation. According to many of the scholars, the third revelation was Suratul Muzammil. Ya يَا Muzammilu, الْمُزَّمِّلُ قُمِ اللَّيْلَ إِلَّا قليلا. Then he was told, okay, now what do you need to do? First and foremost, you need to make sure that everything that continues, everything that happens from here on out is built on a solid foundation. And there is one foundation, that is our relationship with Allah. That is our relationship with Allah. Unfortunately many times today in the, in the era of intellectualism, and this is affecting the Muslim community no doubt as well. We obsess about intellectualism at the same time. Knowledge to us is paramount. We have to understand knowledge is only a means to an end. Knowledge is not the objective. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala before, before most, majority of the Qur'an has been revealed, very little has been revealed. Even at that time, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, the first thing He's instructing him to do, Illa Qalila, stand up and pray to your Lord throughout the night. That's what everything else that is going to come after this is only meant to strengthen your relationship with Allah. It is only meant for you to go out and establish a relationship for the people with Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, connect them to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. Spirituality is key. So in our this is an educational forum. So I say this very with this in mind. I advise myself before anyone else that this this is an educational program. We're talking about the seerah, we're studying the seerah. But what we have to understand is our relationship with Allah is the objective here. If we listen, if we attend, if we study in-depth seerah of the Prophet wasallam, very academic, very detailed, very thorough, etc., etc., whatever other descriptions we can give it. But if this does not result in me becoming stronger in my relationship with Allah, it's in vain. It's a lot of talk, it's a lot of words. That's all it ends up being. And so we have to keep that in mind. So the third revelation was, establish your relationship with Allah, from build your foundation first. Connect with Allah, and let everything else follow after that. Because then everything will make sense. That's the other thing, that's the other thing. Everything else that is about to come your way, the only way that will make sense if you're looking at it through the right lens. If you got the right filters on, you got the right lenses on. And that lens is relationship with Allah, spirituality. The fourth revelation, يَا أَيُّهِ الْمُدَّثِرِ قُمْ فَأَنْذِرُ وَرَبَّكَ فَكَبِّرُ وَثِيَابَكَ فَطَاهِرُ وَالرُّجَزَ فَهْجُرُ وَلَا تَمْنُ تَسْتَكْثِرُ You know Surah Al-Muzamin, I talked about how Surah Surah Al-Qalam, wa innaka laa'ala khuluqin 'adheem talked about the character of the prophetism emphasize akhlaq character the third revelation emphasize akhlaq what did it say wahjurhum hajran jamee fasbir sabaran jameela that it told the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa to be patient on what fasbir alama yaquluna wahjurhum hajran jameela be patient on what they say and leave them to allah wadharni wal mukaththibeen let me deal with these people who reject you, refuse you, or deal wrongly with you. But you gotta maintain your character. You gotta maintain your standard. The fourth revelation, Surah mudathir Surah Al-Mudathir, Surah number 74. يَأَيُّهِ Mudathir. So again the Prophet is the Prophet addressed as the one who has himself wrapped up. Qum fa'andir, Stand up. Now it's time. It's a call to action. The first call to action was stand up and pray. Now the second call to action, now that you've prayed and you know what's going on here, قُمْ فَأَنْذِر. And warn. Warn. And we talked about the meaning of warn in the last session. It means to caution someone about something that could be harmful to them out of love and concern for that person. So فَأَنْذِر. It says warn. Who to do, who do warn? It does not mention the object. Warn anyone and everyone. You're meant to warn the whole world. وَرَبَّكَ فَكَبِّرَ And proclaim the greatness only of your Lord. Meaning that's the gist of the message. There are so many things that, you know, this is something very important. One of one, one of the key aspects that we're, I'm trying to focus on in this series on the life of the Prophet ﷺ is extracting the lessons and implementing them. De- detailing how we can implement this in our lives. From the very beginning of the revelation till the very end of the revelation. The message was always consistent. The goal, the objective of the message was to connect people to Allah, like we just talked about. You proclaim the greatness of your Lord. That's what you're sent to do. That's the objective. What can we learn from that? What we need to learn from that is any type of initiative that we have, an Islamic initiative, da'wah initiative that we have. No matter what the nature of it might be, no matter what the methodology of it may be, no matter what the means of delivering that da'wah to someone might be, it does not matter. There's a bottom line. And there's only one bottom line. And that is connecting people to Allah. The second that any type of initiative, organization, association, whatever else there may be, anytime it advocates... Anytime it's objective, becomes anything other than connecting people to Allah, it is no longer calling to Allah. It's no longer called da'wah then. We gotta call it something else. We gotta call it something else. It could be social, it could be business, it could be money, I don't care. But it's not called da'wah anymore. That's one thing we have to be clear about. And this is not so that I can sit here and now say, okay, now let me think. What organizations can I think of? So I can critique them and see if they're actually dawah or not. That's not my role. Allah is the judge. None of us are in that capacity. None of us are judge, jury, or executioner. We're all on trial before Allah. What I need to do is I need to check myself. What am I involved with and what is my bottom line? What is my objective? What is my goal? That's what I have to check. So, وَرَبَّكَ فَكَبِّرْ Proclaim the greatness only of your Lord. Speak of the greatness of and the grandeur of your master. وَثِيَابَكَ And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said something very interesting to the Prophet wasallam. He said, "In your clothes purify them. And your clothes purify them. This is, you know the Qur'an from the beauty and the majesty and the eloquence of the book of Allah is that there are so many different, so many things are implied at the same time. So many layers to everything Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. So the very basic message as you can hear in your clothes, clean them, purify in your clothes, clean it, purify it. What does that mean first and foremost, what that is addressing? Is that anyone that is engaged in this message needs to first and foremost make sure that they are presentable before the people. Because the second you step out now, the second you are doing da'wah now, the second that you are preaching and teaching now, You represent something. You represent something. For us as a minority here in this country, it is very important that we understand. We represent Islam, we represent Allah and His Messenger, we represent the Qur'an, we represent the Deen. So we have to be presentable at all times. And I'm not just talking about presentable like we just got to put on a nice suit and the rest is done. So let me put on a nice suit and then slap a couple of people and then call a bunch of people like terrible names and act like a jerk and that's all good because I'm wearing a nice suit. So alhamdulillah, that don't fly, that don't work that way. What it means to be presentable is everything and anything, how I conduct myself, how I behave, how I manage my behavior is all representative of of, of, you know, who I am and what I'm doing. And so we have to cleanse ourselves. And the Prophet is again, I told you that the character was emphasized in the second, third, and now in the fourth revelation again. So this is talking about akhlaq and character. How you conduct yourself, how you present yourself, how you go out there and you deal with people. You got to clean that up, you got to purify that, because you are representing something. وَثِيَابَكَ فَطَاهِرْ وَالرُّجَزَ فَهَجُرْ And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't leave anything to mystery. He says, there are again many layers in understanding to this as well. Ruj is according because of other places in the Quran as well. So some of the Mufassirun say this refers to shirk. And that definitely could be implied. That definitely is implied, without a doubt. But at the same time, we also have to take it for we also have to take it at, you know, from the basic, the literal meaning of it. Ruj is anything filthy. And also when we look in the Arabic language that rudz, ridz even, would also refer to like foul mouth behavior, like foul speech, bad behavior, bad type of talk, shamelessness, obscene talk and obscene behavior. So the Prophet is being told that there's a lot of things that you are going to have to give up now. Not to say that the Prophet ﷺ did do those things from before, but they don't matter. You know how sometimes when somebody advises us, we get very like bent out of shape, we get very insulted. Like if you join the da'wah committee, and somebody says, okay, this you got to do this, you got to do that, you got can't do this, you can't... Whoa, what are you trying to say, brother? What are you trying to say? You're trying to say, I yeah, do that stuff? I don't do that stuff. We get all bent out of shape. This is Muhammad Rasulullah wasallam, al-sadiq al He's the most honorable man, so honorable that his en- enemies would testify to his honor and his dignity, and his chastness and his behavior and his quality. His enemies would speak of his quality. So of course the Prophet of Allah never had. And we talked about this in the seerah, how throughout his childhood and his youth, Allah divinely protected him from falling into anything wayward. But nevertheless, here Allah Wa Taala is telling the Prophet Sallam that all these bad types of things, Gotta give it up. You gotta start there and completely give it up. It is no longer an option. You will be pushed to your limits. But that will not be an option for you. Not only that, but on top of that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Prophet sallallahu alayhi Nor you are about to embark on a great mission. You will be the means, you will be the cause, you will be the channel by means of which people will find salvation, people will find success, people will succeed in this life and in the hereafter. You will be a means of great khair for millions. And today we know billions of people. But don't you dare ever hang it over anyone's head. Don't you dare ever think you've done anyone a favor. Again, for any one of us at any level that does any Islamic work, that does any da'wah, that does anything to represent Islam, to spread Islam, to teach Islam at any level, we have to understand, we don't do nobody, we don't do nothing a favor. We haven't done anything to hang our hat on. We have no right to claim some type of, you know, props or rights for ourselves. We have to understand that yes, we are very grateful, we should be appreciative of Allah, we should be thankful to Allah, but there's a, there's a line. We should never let that type of great gratitude and appreciation to Allah cross into the area of arrogance. I do this and I do that and I do this. The second we start to list our accolades, the, st- the second we start to claim something for ourselves, there's a problem here. Once again, now I'm not doing dawah anymore. I'm doing something else. I'm a marketer, an advertiser, a businessman, something, something, a politician. I don't know. Allahu Alam. But all I know is I'm not doing dawah at that point. Wala tamnun. So don't you dare ever do that. That's So this was the fourth revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and again it emphasized the character for the Prophet. Now that the Prophet has been given the task preach. Preach. Now what exactly transpired from here on out? What I'd like to do here is kind of interject something, kind of an analysis, an overview of this issue. We talked about the types of revelation, the stages, maratibul wahy. We talked about the stages of revelation. What I'd like to take this opportunity to do now is to talk about the stages of the preaching, the message, the stages of the calling to Islam, the calling to Allah, maratibul da'wah. I'd like to take this opportunity to do that. Many different scholars have discussed this maratibu da'wah wa marahiluha, the different stages and phases of the mission, the cause, the call to Allah, have discussed this at different levels. Ibn Qayyim, rahimahullah Ta'ala, in his book on the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Zadul Ma'ad, has actually categorized it very, very well. So I'm gonna go ahead and borrow from here. Ibn Qayyim, Rahimahullah, categorizes them in five different stages, five different phases. Number one is, he says, an nubuwa. Number one was just the bestowing of prophethood. He says this is a stage in and of itself where the Prophet ﷺ is given prophethood, he is first given revelation, he has allowed time to kind of come to terms with it, he has allowed time to internalize it, to become one with it, and this in and of itself is a stage and a phase of, in and of itself. Why does he say this is a stage and a phase of prophethood? Or of the da'wah of the message? I'll explain in just a little bit, once I kind of get through this little introduction here. Number two is, انذار عشيرته الأقربين الثاني indaru ashiratihil الأقربين He says the second phase or stage of the preaching of the message and the mission is to warn the close tribes people. The Prophet's close tribesmen, tribes people, meaning Banu Hashim and even Quraysh at some level. Or rather, we should say just Banu Hashim to begin with. Banu Hashim. Athalitha, the third level is, he says, is to preach to his people, to warn his people, and that is Quraysh wa Makkah. Quraysh and the people of Makkah in general. A in القوم ما من, من The fourth phase of the preaching of the message is to warn a people that no warner had ever come to them before him. وهم العرب قاطبة And they were basically the entire area of the Arabs. The entire Arab region, the Arabs in general. So moving beyond the people of Mecca. Because the people of Mecca, there was a precedence. There was a history of the message in Mecca. I mean, Baitullah Kaaba is there, Ibrahim Ismail a.s. In fact, when we talked about this, um, one of the sessions that we had, I think it was session number 23, that we talked about the history of the Kaaba. In the history of the Kaaba, we actually talked about how there are narrations would say that how many hundreds and thousands of prophets and messengers actually came to and visited the Baitullah the Kaaba and worshiped there and did the tawaf of the Kaaba. This was almost like something that prophets and messengers, so many hundreds and thousands of them had come and done this. So many different prophets and messengers had come there at that place before, but then moving outside of Mecca to the overall general region of the Arabs, then many, many of these regions, no prophet, no messenger had ever come to before. This is evidenced by the Quran as well, where Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala told the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in the mid Makkah era, halfway through the Makkah period, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala told the Prophet Sallam in Surah number thirty-six, ma that you know the Arabs outside of Mecca were even more stubborn. You know, we, we oftentimes when we talk about stubbornness. And the most stubborn people the Prophet must have dealt with, oftentimes we assume that it's probably the Quraysh, the people of Makkah. And they were very stubborn, they were very hard to deal with, many of them. You know, so much so that they accepted Islam at the conquest of Makkah. Time and time again, they were at odds with the Prophet but it heads with the Prophet But in spite of that, the Arabs that were outside of Mecca were even more stubborn than the Arabs of Mecca, than the Quraysh. Because even after the Prophet ﷺ, after Quraysh, and even many of them had accepted Islam even outside of Mecca, many of them had still not accepted Islam at the time of the passing of the Prophet ﷺ. And even those tribes outside of Mecca, who had accepted Islam before the passing of the Prophet ﷺ, as soon as the Prophet ﷺ passed, they immediately turned back. They apostated and, in fact, aimed to launch an attack on Mecca and Medina to try to to try to basically defeat the Muslims and take care of Islam. At that point, all those tribes that had kind of been biding their time had still not accepted Islam. As soon as the Prophet ﷺ passed, they basically allied with those other tribes and they tried to attack the Muslims again. And that's when Abu Bakr ﷺ created a unified front and basically, you know, repelled that that, that major threat. But it goes to show you, the Qur'an talks about this in Surah Tawbah, which was revealed towards the end of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. It's a late surah. in Surah. kufran wa That these outer lying tribes, these Bedouin tribes, these nomadic tribes in Arabia, that they are the most severe when it comes to their hypocrisy and their disbelief. And their animosity towards Allah and His Messenger and the Muslims. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, however, tells the Prophet in Surah Yasin, in Surah number 36, that we want you to understand exactly why they are the way that they are. Why this situation is. لِتُنذِرَ قَوْمًا Because you are warning a people that their forefathers had never been warned. فَهُمْ خَافِلُونَ And that's why you find them so difficult to communicate with. That's why they're so hard to talk to. Because they never, their forefathers never even received a message. There's nothing that these people nor their previous generations have ever interacted with something like this. So you got to understand where they're coming from. But nevertheless, so the fourth phase of the prophethood, of the preaching of the message, was to now communicate the message to those outlying people. Well, إن Man من بلغته من الجن إلى آخر الدع. And the fifth phase of the prophethood was to now warn each and every single person that the da'wah was meant for that it reaches from human beings I and mean even from the jinn. And those were many of the letters of the Prophet ﷺ. And the lasting legacy, the fervor, the confidence, the commitment that he left behind in the ummah, starting with the generation of the Sahaba who were committed to take this message to the four corners of the world. There are stories, there are actual narrations about Sahaba radiallahu anhum. I forget the name of this great Sahabi. May Allah forgive me, but I forget the name of this great Sahabi radiallahu anhu who basically traveled with the message all throughout North Africa till he finally reached the sea, the ocean, after crossing through Maghrib, after crossing through modern day Morocco, until he finally reached the sea and the ocean. And it said that he walked his horse actually into the water till the water had reached the chest of the horse, and the horse could not go further into the water. And he said, Oh Allah, I've come as far as I can. I've come as far as I can, Oh Allah. And as far as I can see, I don't see anything beyond here. But if I knew something was beyond there, someone was beyond there, Ya Allah, I would explore my means to try to take the message beyond here. These were the sahaba radiallahu anhu. May Allah be pleased with them. So this that the Prophet ﷺ, that is that is the legacy of Muhammad Rasulullah. ﷺ. This is a phase of his mission and his preaching that he prepared and left people behind to continue on preaching and teaching and spreading this message far and wide. And we are all a product of that. We're all a product of that sitting here today. So this is a little bit of a breakdown of the different phases. And now just to kind of talk about and discuss, you know, how long each of them lasted. So the very first phase that we talked about, just nubuwa, just coming to terms with prophethood, that was basically the Prophet ﷺ just internalizing the message. And then immediately, obviously, this is a major life change, this is a major change of lifestyle. So obviously the Prophet ﷺ is sharing quietly what has transpired with him, what is occurring with him, with the people in his home and the people closest and nearest and dearest to him. And this lasted basically three years. Where the Prophet ﷺ was just himself coming to terms with this, implementing the message and obviously sharing what was going on with him to the people who were immediately around him and the people that were close to him. And this lasted the first three years in Mecca. The second phase that we talked about, now when he started teaching and preaching the message to at least Banu Hashim. this or even the Quraysh at some level, then this basically continued until the hijra, the migration, the, the, the first the, the next ten years, until he would finally leave Mecca to go to Medina. So he was told to now he was openly preaching, openly talking about Islam. But they were told to not retaliate, to not respond physically, to no matter what level of aggression the Quraysh or Banu Hashim might commit. But they, he he was just told to continue to preach, talk about the message, and do what he could do until migration finally occurred. The third phase now to warn the overall Quraysh and his people, that was basically after the migration. And this lasted till the treaty of Hudaybiyah. And now one extra one extra thing was added now to the overall scope of the preaching and teaching of the message that the Prophet ﷺ was now permitted to retaliate and to respond to aggression with similar aggression. The fourth phase of the Prophethood the preaching of the message that we talked about was basically that was after now the conquest of Mecca to where now Islam was being spread further and farther and wider. Until the end of the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and then the fifth phase, of course, which we talked about, was what the Ummah carried on after the, after the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Now, let's go ahead and go back to exactly where we were talking about now, the life of the Prophet ﷺ. So now we're talking about the nubuwa, the first phase of preaching and teaching the message where the Prophet ﷺ is just coming to terms with prophethood and internalizing this message and himself realizing that he is a prophet and a messenger of Allah, and now starting to share this reality with the people closest to him something we've talked about because when we talked about the prophet sallallahu receiving revelation coming home so now let's talk about the people who initially came to islam and that first and foremost begins with his beloved wife khadijah the mother of the believers Radiallahu anha may allah be pleased with her so khadijah Radiallahu anha was the first one to receive, to basically accept islam She was the first one to accept Islam and she was the first one to respond to the call. And she was the first one to believe in the message of the Prophet ﷺ and accept Islam. And this is narrated in many, many different... There's many different narrations talk about this. Wa amanat Khadija bintu Khuali ibnis Haq writes, Wa sadqat bi ma min taala wa 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 ala amrihi. Wa kant awwal man amana billahi Allahi wa Rasulhi wa sadqa bi ma jaa minhu. Fuxff Allahu bi dalika an rasulihi, La yismagu shayan yakrahu min radn alaihi wa takdibin luhu. Fi yhznuhu dalika. Illa farja Allahu anu biha. Ifa raja alaihi very eloquently, Ibn Ishaq describes the role of Khadija رضي الله in the mission of the Prophet He says that Khadija bin Tukhwaylid, she accepted Islam, she believed. She testified, she attested to the truth of everything that the Prophet ﷺ came with from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. She was his aide and his minister in preaching and teaching of the message. She was the first one to believe in Allah, in Allah and His Messenger. She was the first one to attest to the truth of the message that the Prophet ﷺ came with. He then says something very beautiful. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually lightened the load that Prophethood had on the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam by means of Khadija radiallahu anha. He lightened the load of Prophethood of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam by means of Khadija radiallahu anha. And... Uh, Ibn Ishaq writes, That any single time the Prophet heard something that he didn't like that bothered him. Anytime somebody would reject and refuse the Prophet Any Anytime somebody would call the Prophet a liar and would deny him. And this was very hurtful to the Prophet This caused distress to the Prophet إلا فرج اللَّهُ anhu biha. Except that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would remove that stress, would remove that sorrow, would remove that pain from the heart of the Prophet by means of Khadija radiallahu Raja ileha to When he would go back home to her after a long hard day of preaching and dealing with the with the with the hate and the anger of the people, when he would return back to her at home she would strengthen him. She would solidify him. وَتُخَفِفُ عَلَيْهِ And she would lighten the load from him. And she would remind him that he was speaking the truth. She would remind him that he was speaking the truth. And she would make the dealing with the people so much easier for him. Subhanallah, think about that. She made it easier for him to deal with the people. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with her. And so this was Khadija radiAllahu anha. She was the first one to accept Islam, and this was the role that she played. There's a famous narration in the Sahihain, which talks about. There are many narrations that talk about the virtue of Khadija radiAllahu anha. One narration in the Sahihain in Bukhari and Muslim that speaks of the virtues of Khadija radiAllahu anha. The Prophet of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam says, "Umirtu an ubashira Khadija. Khadija, I was commanded." I was commanded by Allah. I was commanded that I should congratulate Khadija bibaytin min qasabin. To congratulate Khadija of a palace. Of a home in paradise. Qasab in the Arabic language literally refers to, it's the word that would be used for any type of a pearl or any type of a valuable stone when it is hollowed out and emptied out, kind of carved out. To use as jewelry when you would hollow or carve it out to fit it onto a ring, or to put it through a necklace or something like that, that qasab would refer to that. I've been told, I've been commanded to congratulate Khadija of a home of a palace in paradise that will be a single pearl that is hollowed out. Think about that. A palace that is one singular pearl that has been hollowed out in an entire palace has been carved inside of one pearl. That's, that's a gift for Khadijah. That's a gift for Khadijah. So I've been told to congratulate Khadijah of this. So we see that even Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Prophet Sallallahu alayhi wa to congratulate Khadijah of a little bling bling, right? It's good to give it to your wives, alright? Sunnah. لا صخب wa la nasaba. And think about what Khadijah radiallahu anha was dealing with. Think about what Khadijah radiAllahu Anha was dealing with. We just talked about this, right? She's the wife of Muhammad Sallallahu الله Wasallam. She, you know, it, you know, we talk about some sometimes people bringing stress home, bringing work home, coming home stressed out, tired, whatever it may be. Think about the type we just read about it. The stress, the pain, the anguish, the worry, the concern. This was not a job. This was his life mission. This was the reason of his being in his existence. So definitely that pain, that stress, that anxiety, that, that, that trouble, that worry was coming home with him. And she was basically helping him deal with all of that. Think about, think about her job, how difficult her job was. Helping him deal with all of that. So all the noise and all the trouble and everything that she was dealing with, that she was helping the Prophet deal with and cope with, because of that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Prophet says, I was told, I was commanded to congratulate Khadija of a palace in paradise that is a single pearl that is hollowed out. la سَخَبَ fihi There will be no noise in there. There will be no noise. No more noise there. Everything that she put up with in this world, there will be no noise over there. نصبه, nor will there be any hardship or any difficulty there. She did her time here. She paid her dues here. She won't have to deal with anything over there. Another narration, which talks about the virtues of Khadijah radiAllahu anha, the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alaihi actually says, "I was commanded to give salam from Allah subhanahu wa taala." Jibreel came to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi and said, "Allah sends his salam to Khadijah." Allah sends His salam to Khadijah. Imagine receiving salam from Allah. Khadija radiallahu anha was delivered salam by, from, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this life, in this world. That is a reward of people that is mentioned in paradise. Salamun qawlam min Rabbir Raheem. But she was given that in the life of this world. One time the Prophet remarked that the best of women in the heavens... The best of women in the heavens is Maryam bint Imran. Is Maryam the mother of Isa salam? And the best of women on the earth is Khadija bint Khwailid. So these are all the virtues of Khadija radiallahu anha. She was the first one to accept the message. She was the first one to accept Islam. And the first one to stand by the side of the Prophet of Allah s.a.w. There's a very beautiful... Now to talk about who accepted Islam next? Who accepted Islam next? There's a very beautiful story to talk about this. So now that Khadija accepted Islam, what exactly were they doing? Now, of course, she's helping the Prophet kind of, you know, of course, deal with this and handle the situation, manage the situation, cope with all the difficulty that comes along with that. But the Prophet of Allah wa sallam, as I mentioned before, was told immediately by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to start praying to Allah. And this is something that scholars have discussed about what was the level of salah at the very beginning. We know that five times daily prayer came down at the time of al-Isra al miraj we know that. That's a well established fact. But Salah was there from the very beginning of the journey of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. What was the nature of that Salah? Some of the scholars say, because of the ayat, وَسَبِّهْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ فِي الْعَشِيّ وَالِبْكَارِ that to praise and glorify Your Lord in the morning and in the evening, that salah used to be twice a day. It was made mandatory, obligatory, because it's the command form, lil wujub. It's the command form in the Qur'an, قَبْلَ طُلُوعِ الشَّمْسِ وَقَبْلَ غُرُوبِهَا Time and time again, place and place again in the Qur'an, in the book of Allah, that basically morning and evening this salah was made farad on the Prophet to begin with. Wallahu ta'ala alam. Some scholars disagree with that, but nevertheless, it's something that we don't really have anything concrete in regards to. We just know that the Prophet did observe prayer salah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the morning and in the evening. We do know that he prayed during the night. He prayed in, during the night. Again, some scholars say that this was mandatory upon the Prophet ﷺ. Some say, no, it was not mandatory upon the Prophet ﷺ. ta'ala تَعَلَىٰ أَعْلَمُ بِالصَّوَابِ Allah knows best. We don't have anything absolutely concrete in that regard. We do know this much, that if we try to look at the actions of the Prophet ﷺ, that's why many scholars have felt that it was mandatory upon the Prophet ﷺ, even after the five times daily prayer came down. Why? Because the Prophet ﷺ never left praying during the night time. That was, some, that was something he consistently did. So much so that it talked about the end of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, even when he physically was now becoming more and frail, and basically he was near death, that even at that point in time, Aisha ﷺ talks about the Prophet ﷺ, sitting and praying, but he would pray in the night. Shortening, the, lessening the number of raka'at, shortening the prayer. Sitting and even praying if need be, but he would pray during the night time. Which is indicative of the fact that this was something that was an established obligation upon the Prophet But again, I'll still leave it at that, that Allah knows best. We don't have anything absolutely concrete to which we can say without a shred of a doubt. But nevertheless, this was something that Prophet ﷺ observed. So, you know, a lot of times when we talk about the five times daily prayer, we sometimes have a misnomer, a misconception. We think that the, that's when the five times daily prayer at its auqat, at its five times became mandatory, obligatory. But we oftentimes assume that salah didn't even exist before then. That's incorrect. Salah did exist. It's a well-established fact. And we'll even talk about some narrations from the seerah which talk about the Prophet wasallam praying well, way before that time. Even publicly praying way before that time. Well, what? A, sometimes we assume that maybe that's when the salah was given in the exact form that we have it now. Even that is incorrect. But even the specific format of the prayer is not something that the Prophet practiced before al-Isra wal-mi'raj, but it's even something that the previous anbiya practiced as well. Now we can't say again concretely it was exactly the format that we pray in, but it was very very similar. Warka عُمَى In Surah baqarah that's an address to Banu Israel. That's talking to Banu Israel, Maryam, the mother of Isa salam, is being told what? Wasjudi Do sujood and do ruku' so, so, so salah, even with the arkan of salah, the format of prayer that we see today was there and it was well established. So it talks about this. There are many narrations, Ibn Ishaq mentions, and even Ibn Hisham mentions many different narrations in which it talks about how the Prophet ﷺ was even taught this prayer to begin with. It's a very beautiful narration. So he says, So Khadija was the first one to believe and attested the truth of what the Prophet ﷺ came with. الله الله so of course now Ibn Ishaq is contending based on this narration that this this praying in the morning and the evening was an obligation upon the Prophet ﷺ. So he says, alaihi ﷺ came to the Prophet ﷺ. فَهَمَزَ لَهُ, في ناحية له عين من زمزمة. So he says that he he basically took the Prophet ﷺ to a to to basically behind one of the mountains, and it said in some narrations that this was behind the Mount Safa this was behind Mount Safa, he basically took the Prophet there, and almost like as a miracle, this is Jibreel of course, as a miracle what he basically did was, he caused, he basically, by the command and the Amr of Allah, but as a miracle, a spring of the water of Zamzam sprung up behind Mount Safa. Zamzam was coming up where it was coming up. Close to Baytullah, close to the Kaaba. But they went behind Mount Safa, and from there, a spring of the water of Zamzam sprung up from there. Why? To basically give the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam a quiet, private place where they could go, and now they could do whatever they were about to do to keep Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam kind of out of everyone's sight. What is he doing? That's weird. Why is he doing that? Kind of like when you go to make wudu in, you know, at your workplace. Same thing. Alright, so that's basically what was given Because of, again, right now is the quiet time. Right now the preaching is not public. Right now the Prophet is being protected from the harm of people. So right now this Jibreel takes the Prophet from there. Water from Zamzam springs up there. And then Fatawadda'a Jibreel wa Muhammad alayhi Jibreel alayhi salam and the Prophet of Allah made wudu together from the water of Zamzam. So Jibreel ﷺ is showing the Prophet some wudu, ritual purification. What's the English word for wudu? Yeah, when have you ever used that word in common conversation? Exactly. Alright, so ritual purification is what we're gonna call it, okay? Not ablution. I'm abluting right now, right? <laughs> I don't even know how you would use it as a verb. But anyways, I, I saw something funner, funny the other day. Somebody actually posted on Twitter, words that you, lo- that you learn in the English language only because of Islamic studies. Ablution is one of those words. But anyways, so ritual purification, they learned at that point. The Prophet Wasallam is being taught by Jibreel a.s. So they make wudu together. Then the Prophet of Allah sallallahu prayed two raka'at. Wasajda, he prayed two raka'at with four sajdas sound familiar meaning he learned how to pray the format a rakaat like we pray it now two sajda's per raka'at. wa sajada sajdat sallallahu wa wa ta'abat nafsuhu so now the Prophet Sallallahu came back home, and Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala had given him the coolness of his eyes. Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala had given him something that gave him peace and tranquility and fulfillment. Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala had given him something that he would that the Prophet loved, and that was salah. فأخذ بيدي حتَّى بها العين. Then he took his wife, his beloved wife, Khadija radiyallahu Anha, by the hand. He held the hand of his beloved wife Khadija radiAllahu anha, and he brought her to that same spring. فتوضعك ما توضع جبريل And then the Prophet says him again made wudu just like Jibreel had made wudu and Khadija radiAllahu anha he taught her how to make wudu and they made wudu there. ثم ركع ركعتين And then they prayed two raka'at وأربع sajdat making four sujood, two such as per rakah. Basically when, the, when that said in the narration, means the two rakahs like we pray them today. ثُمَّ كَانَ wa Khadijah يُصُلِّيَانِ Sirran, And from that day on forward, Khadijah رضي anha and the Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings be upon him, used to pray together in secret, in quiet, in their home. And that was the beginning of salah, that was prayed as a family. They prayed as a family together. And that was the beginning of salah. And that was the beginning of Islam. That was the beginning of the ummah. A family, a home, a husband and a wife. It's the beginning of salah. Husband and wife praying together. You know, we talk about bonding. We talk about, you know, bonding experiences. Quality time. This is quality time. They establish their relationship, their connection with Allah together. They pray together. Now, this is basically what was going on. So Khadija radiAllahu Anha accepts Islam and they start and then they, they pray together. Who was the next person to accept Islam? So the next person to accept Islam based on... Now, over here, this is something I'll probably end up talking about in the next session because we're running out of time. But I don't want to jump ahead of myself, but there are a lot of narrations which basically talk about Abu Bakr radiAllahu anhu was the first person to accept, accept Islam. No, Ali radiAllahu anhu was. No, Khadija was. This is all reconciled. This is all reconciled by the scholars. Abu, Abu, Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah taala has reconciled this very well. He says that the first one to accept Islam from the women was Khadija radiAllahu anha. The first one to accept Islam, and we've talked about her story, you know, in some detail. The first one to accept Islam from children. Was Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu anhu, we'll talk about his story in a little bit of detail. The third one, the, the, the first one to accept Islam from the slaves, who were a whole demographic at that time, you have to take that into consideration. Was Zayd ibn Haritha radiallahu anhu, and we'll talk about his story in detail. And then the first one to accept Islam amongst the men was Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu, and we'll talk about his story and his accepting of Islam in detail. Another reconciliation of why there's so many different narrations. Some say the first was Abu Bakr, and there's actually the, there's a lot of narrations which say, first one to accept Islam was Abu Bakr, first one to accept Islam was Abu Bakr. There's two explanations for why they say this. Even though historically, it basically is pretty much, when you bring all the narrations together, we realize that Abu Bakr radiAllahu anhu was more like, most likely the fourth one to accept Islam. Generally speaking. But why do so many narrations say he was the first one, first one, first one? Two reasons. Number one, because the first three, Khadija radiallahu anha, the wife of the Prophet ﷺ, Ali radiallahu anhu, which I'll explain in a little bit of detail, but he's a child who lives in the house of the Prophet wasallam. The third one was Aid ibn Haritha radiallahu anhu, who was a slave in the house of the Prophet ﷺ. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, is oftentimes referred, many narrations speak of him being the first one to accept Islam because his was the first public acceptance of Islam. Nobody outside of the home had accepted Islam. He was the first one outside of the home. So that's why he's oftentimes alluded to as the first one in some narrations. Another reason for this is, and this is not in any way reflective of the people giving these narrations, they were not like this. But generally speaking, because Arabian society at that time was a society that basically did not treat women properly, did not have proper rights of women. Of course, they they did not treat slaves properly. Children… Are, were, were children as well. They weren't really viewed as being, you know, you know real uh, contributing members of society and community. So because of that, the first male adult to accept Islam was Abu Bakr radiallahu So many of the historical narrations refer to him as the first one to accept Islam because he, he was the only valuable contributing member of society. In their eyes, that's not how we feel, but in their eyes, he was the only valuable contributing member of society to accept Islam first and foremost. So that's why he's referred to as that. But nevertheless, when you put all of the narrations together, the second person to accept Islam was Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu anhu. Now, a little bit of detail about Ali radiallahu anhu, a little bit of history of Ali radiallahu anhu. Ali radiallahu anhu is the cousin of the Prophet wasallam. But of course, as a cousin, the relationship is more of like an uncle and a nephew. The actual relation is cousin. The actual relation is cousin, like on the family tree, your cousins. But the relationship, the dynamic of the relationship was more of an uncle and a nephew. Primarily because Ali radiallahu anhu was, based on the different narrations, was at the very least 30 years younger than the Prophet Wasallam. So if you have a cousin that's, you know, a couple of years younger than you, a couple of years older than you, right? And so you play ball with that cousin, and you hang out with that cousin, and you go out to eat with that cousin, that's not really how it works when your cousin is 30 years older than you. It's a little bit different. Alright, so that's what the dynamic of the relationship was. more of an uncle and a nephew type relationship. What this, What the narration tells us is that Abu Talib, the uncle of the Prophet someone who was the leader of the tribe at that time. There were some very harsh times going on in Quraysh and Mecca generally. Some tough economic times, and I've talked about this. There were some tough economic times. Abu Talib specifically, this is well documented, and we talked about in detail when we covered the life of Abu Talib earlier, was that Abu Talib was a very simple man by nature. He wasn't a real big entrepreneur, wasn't really a big you know, successful businessman. Just by nature, he was a very simple man. It's just how he was who he was. To the point, to the extent where even though he was a leader of his tribe, he had very limited means. We, I talked about how even when he passed away, he basically left nothing. He left absolutely nothing money-wise. A very simple man. That's who he was by nature. That was actually one of his virtues. That's one of his good qualities. And this is something that rubbed off on the Prophet ﷺ. That's why the Prophet ﷺ was such a, such a humble and simple person as well. So simple in his means and his mode of living? Because the Prophet was raised by a man of simplicity. He was raised by a man. min al iman. The Prophet said, simplicity is from iman, it's a mark and a sign of iman. Because he was raised by a man of simple living. That's why it's such a great quality of the Prophet So anyways, Abu Talib was a man of very limited means. So the Prophet ﷺ, now that he had become an adult, and this shows you the family values of the Prophet ﷺ. See again, these are the little, little things that we don't often focus on, that need to be focused on. The, man, the Prophet ﷺ was a man of great family values. He took care of his family relations. We're talking about revelation, we're talking about preaching the message of Islam. Who cares about keeping up with what's going on with your uncle? I'm doing the work of Islam. Right? That's a mentality we have. I'm a preacher of Islam. So if I can't keep up with a few uncles or whatnot, if I can't keep up with all my relatives, tough luck, they got to deal with it. Because I am a noble preacher of the religion. Right, like we kind of have this mentality. When we look to the example of the Prophet ﷺ, we find out how exactly foolish that mindset is. So the Prophet ﷺ, now that he was an adult, now he was standing on his feet, now he was a man with a family and a home and a means of living. The Prophet ﷺ was very cognizant and aware of his uncle's situation. The man raised him, so the narration says he goes to Abbas, one of his other uncles. He goes to Abbas, radiAllahu Anhu, and he says, "Oh dear uncle, your brother, my uncle, somebody very beloved to us, Abu Talib, is in very difficult financial situation." And he still, and he has many, you know, he has a family, he has a big home, he has a big family. He has a couple of younger sons, younger children. He could use some help. Why don't we go and offer to kind of help him out with the family situation? So they said, okay. So Abbas and the Prophet of Allah go to his uncle Abu Talib and they basically offer their help. And at that point in time, one of the sons of Abu Talib, Ja'far bin Abi Talib radiallahu anhu, Ja'far radiallahu anhu is called Ja'far al-Tayyar, a great shaheed of Islam. So he is taken in by Abbas radiyallahu anhu. And then he lived in the house of Abbas radiallahu anhu, so Abbas radiallahu could handle the cost of living. Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu anhu is taken home by the Prophet وسلم, as a child from very very young, when he was just a few years old. So he grows up in the house of the Prophet The Prophet raised him. And that was part of the reason of the fitra of Ali رضي Anhu being the way that it was. His temperament, his mentality, being the way that it was. So, the narration, some narrations very popularly it's narrated that he was seven years old at the time of beginning a revelation. Actually, the more authentic narrations in the majority of classical books of Sirah actually speak about Ali radiallahu anhu being ten years old. He was ten years old. So now, and some reconcile it by saying that. No, initially when the message first started, you know, when iqra occurred, he was seven. But by the time he accepted Islam that he was ten. But that really doesn't hold up because it's well established that Ali رضي anhu accepted Islam right there in the first few days, in the beginning days. Now how he was introduced to islam is a beautiful story and i'll end with this story and then i'll continue on with talking a little bit more about ali radiallahu anhu and then some of the other early you know people who accepted islam the early converts to islam i'll continue on with that in the next session inshallah but let me just end with this one last story ibn ishaq and many other books of sirah mentioned this story that one time one day at home the Prophet of Allah was praying with Khadija رضي الله عنه, like we talked about earlier. They're praying salah, husband and wife. And they're praying salah together in the home. Ali رضي الله عنه, a child sees them praying. And he says to the Prophet of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم, فَقَالَ علي مُحَمَّدْ ما He says, Dear Muhammad, older brother, bhai Jan. he says, what's this? What are you doing? I've never seen this before. This is strange, it's unique. What is this? Very smart, very bright, very intelligent, very observant. He says, What is this? He says, So the Prophet of Allah seizes the opportunity. We want to teach our children, right? We want to teach our children. Problem is a lot of times we perceive teaching our children to basically yell at them. To wag the finger, to wave the finger at them. Right, to tell them everything they do wrong, and then to yell at them, and to then force it down their throats. The Prophet of Allah ﷺ is praying salah with Khadija radiallahu anha. The child sees them praying, and then naturally himself asks, what are you doing? And then the Prophet of Allah now seizes the opportunity, but now instead of even still yelling at him, explains it to him. Explain? Explain to a child? We're praying salah, shut up. Right? That's our mentality, unfortunately. The Prophet ﷺ explains. Yes, explain yourself to your own child. What is this? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? How are you doing it? So he says, Deenullah. Look at the explanation too. Look at the explanation. Deenullah, this is the religion of Allah. that Allah has chosen for Himself. I mean, this is the Deen that Allah has personally approved of. And he sends his messengers with this deen, this religion. Fa ad'uka ilallahi wahdahu. So I call you to Allah alone. La Sharika lahu. Son, there are no partners to Allah. عبادتي, and I call you to worship only Allah, no partners. والعزة, and these idols that you see, everybody worshiping Allah and Uzza, this religion requires you to deny and refuse worshiping and believing in those idols. He explains it. Ali radiAllahu anhu says, "Hādā amrun lam aṣma bihi qabl al He says, "I've never heard of this before." Fālāstu amrān hatta bihi Aba Talib. I can't really decide until I talk to my dad, Abu Talib, about it. You see again the values? You see the value. I gotta go talk to my dad about it. But of course taking the situation, the Prophet ﷺ is not advocating hiding something from your parents, but the Prophet ﷺ is taking the entire situation into consideration. He says that it's good if you don't talk to anyone else about it. Because the time is not right, Allah has not told me to spread the message about this yet. It's best if you don't talk to anyone about it. And so the Prophet ﷺ told him, he said, Ya Ali ida تُسْلِمْ faktum. SubhanAllah. He doesn't say, Hey, what do you mean you want to talk to somebody about it? What are you trying to do? You trying to call me a liar? Huh? He didn't, he didn't say that. He said, Ya Ali. He said, son, Ida Lam Tuslim Faktum. Even if you don't believe, then keep it to yourself, please. If you don't believe, keep it to yourself. Famakata Ali tilka Kaleila. He said, Ali radiallahu slept on it. Overnight. ثم إن الله أوقع في قلب علي الإسلام. Allah implanted Islam into the heart of Ali radiAllahu anhu. فَأَسْبَحَ غَادِيًا إِلَى رَسُولِ اسْلَامٍ حَتَّى جَاءَهُ. And then he came to the Prophet Sallallahu wasallam the next morning, and he said, ما عرضت علي يا محمد? What would you like to offer to me? What would 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 you instruct me to do? Please tell me what to do. فقال له الْرَسُولَ الله صلى الله عليه وسلم, تشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له وَتَكْفُرُ بالله والعزى من الأنداد. Testified that there is no one worthy of worship but Allah alone, there are no partners for him. Disbelieve in these idols, Allah والعزى, and distance yourself from all these other things that people associate with Allah. Ali radiallahu anhu did exactly that and he accepted Islam. But then he was afraid of letting his father know. He, he didn't know how he would react. He didn't know how he would react. So he kept it private and it said that he did not leave the home of the Prophet ﷺ for quite a few days and he wanted to keep it his son quiet and private and then it's actually said that he would now he joined the Prophet ﷺ in Khadija in prayer. Now husband, wife and child are all praying together. A family praying together, offering salah together. And we'll go ahead and we'll stop here inshallah because it's time for salah. In the, next narration uh, in the next session I'll actually talk about how eventually Ali radiallahu anhu broke the news of accepting Islam to his father Abu Talib and exactly how he discovered that and what was Abu Talib's reaction to finding out not only is the Prophet Wasallam preaching a message, not only has Khadija, his wife, converted, but now his own son who was put in the care of the Prophet ﷺ has also accepted Islam and converted to this new religion. How did he react to all of that? We'll talk about that in the next session. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi Subhanakallah, bihamdik Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta as wa natubu